Um, I'd like to welcome you. We're in week eight now of our series uh, called Equipped, where we're looking at um, spiritual disciplines. And uh, David mentioned it uh, during announcements, but um, last week we, we entered into basically a new section. It's the final section of this series um, where we're, we're just going to take a number of weeks focusing on the discipline of prayer. And uh, if you were with us last week, we, we kind of kicked off this new section um, with an overview of prayer, just looking at the Lord's Prayer uh, that Jesus gave us in Matthew chapter 5. But starting today, building off of that kind of foundation we laid last week, we're going to talk about something that um, it's just my suspicion that a lot of people, um, even if you've been in the faith for a really long time, don't have a great grasp of. And that is um, really how prayer works and how it's meant to be used to process the most difficult situations and complex emotions that you and I are going to experience in this life. And so uh, today, what we're specifically going to be aiming at, I want to talk about how to process, how to use prayer to process the feeling of helplessness. And specifically, um, the question that I'd like to answer is, what are you supposed to do when you can't do anything? Um, I, I, when I was putting this together, I, I thought it would be appropriate to mention on the front end of our time, um, this teaching is a little bit unique as far as the way that it's developed. Um, one thing that I've learned in, in, in pastoring, you know, being a, quote, professional Christian kind of thing, uh, there's a lot of things that, you know, you're not prepared for, you never really think about. Um, one of the things that I've noticed is that I, I have to differentiate between um, texts that I study for the purpose of creating a teaching from them versus texts that I study just for the sake of my own personal relationship with God. It took me a few years of preaching to figure that out because if I try to mix those two together and combine those, then what will wind up help, uh, happening is my, my time with God winds up feeling like work, like I'm studying this or, or reading this for somebody else other than me, and that just doesn't work for me. Um, and so I make a point to kind of differentiate the two. Um, but the way that this teaching came about is... Um, a couple of months ago now, I found myself in um, the midst of a situation that, that uh, left me feeling helpless. Um, it was beyond my ability to um, navigate, and uh, I just didn't really know what to do. It was, it was outside of my control. And the very next morning, after I found myself there, um, I turned to Psalm chapter 5, which is the psalm that we're going to be looking at today. And uh, you know, I was uh, studying it and kind of praying through it and, and meditating on it, and uh, it just became real clear to me. Um, this happens to me more often in the Psalms than any other book of the Bible, but it became crystal clear to me that this was written uh, for me right then and right there, that God was speaking directly to me through that Psalm. It's exactly what I needed to hear then. And so I, I started taking notes, and um, I looked up when I was done that morning and realized that what I had was a teaching uh, all about how to process helplessness. And so um, what God spoke to me a couple of months ago is what I want to share with you today. And, uh, and what that means for you is that if you find yourself in the midst of a situation that has you feeling helpless, um, if, if you find yourself um, at a place in life where there's things going, around, uh, going on around you that you just don't have any control over, um, maybe somebody you love is going down a path and you know you, you, you can't stop them. You just got to love them and, and hope that God does something in them. Um, if there's things going on inside of you that you really wish you could just flip a switch or hit a button and it'd be done and over with, but it's not, and here you are. If, if, you, if you can relate to that, then this teaching's for you. And if you can't relate to that, 
Um, I think experience would show all of us that it's probably not going to be very long until you find yourself in a place like that. And so I hope this teaching today can get you ready for what God might have for you tomorrow. Um, before I get into the, uh, reading the psalm, I want to just kind of give you my, it's, it's um, the thesis of why I even thought it was worth talking about this topic on a Sunday morning. Why talk about how to process helplessness? The reason I thought this would be valuable for us to spend time on is because this is an opinion. I can't point to a Bible verse, um, but my opinion is that um, modern people in our culture are more ill-equipped to deal with facing their own helplessness than any other group of people throughout history. And the reason I, I, I believe that is because, you know, the, the culture that we live in, the world that we live in, uh, we're just living in a time and place where there's almost, I'll put it this way, there's very few problems you're going to be faced with that you don't have some kind of solution for. Um, I, I remember, um, anybody remember that game, The Oregon Trail? Okay, I, that was like the hottest thing in the world when I was in third grade. And I remember watching people played it. Um, it seemed like a very traumatic game. I never actually played it. I only vicariously watched other people play it. And as far as I'm concerned, no one's ever beat that game. It's impossible. Because the way that it works is you're trying to go to Oregon, I guess. It seems like that's where you would land, even if nobody ever gets there. And you take like 13 steps, and somebody gets dysentery. And then, uh, you know, somebody gets attacked by badgers, and a wagon gets struck by lightning, and the whole party's dead. Game over, right? And the thing is, that was reality for a lot of people throughout human history. You know, I don't know about the badgers, but the point is a lot of people have lived really hard lives throughout history. That's just not where we're at in the modern world. I'm not saying that we don't have challenges. I'm saying it's just different now because of, you know, the advances that we've made in technology, the advances that we've made in medicine. There's just not a, not a lot of situations that we butt up against in life that we aren't able to kind of maneuver around or at least have some kind of option to exercise. You know, for instance, I remember... Um, Brushing my teeth, this is probably like three years ago now. I remember I was brushing my teeth, and I haven't done it since. It was three years ago. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Um, that was really poorly phrased. I was brushing my teeth um, last night and also three years ago, and lots of times in between. And my teeth were, they hurt really bad. My molars hurt really bad, the outside of them specifically. And it was then that I came to this realization that I, uh, I have sensitive teeth. Emotionally devastating moment for me, sensitive teeth. Sensitive teeth gang, where you at? Anybody else? All right, there's about a dozen of us. We're, we're a community now. We're a family now. So in realizing this, I drove to CVS, and I found out about this toothpaste called Sensodyne. There's about 800 different versions of it. I grabbed one. I brushed my teeth with that that night, and the problem was immediately resolved. And that's kind of a picture of what life in the modern world is like. You got sensitive teeth, you got a, you got a solution for it. Um, that's great. You know, praise God that we live in a society like that. But I think one of the things that having this much available to us, uh, so many advances, so many cure-alls, so many options, I think one of the effects that that's had on us as a society is it's made us woefully unprepared for the times in life that we're all going to experience when we have no choice but to face how helpless we actually are. Now, it's not funny anymore. We're not talking about teeth talking about life and death. Um, what I want to offer you today in light of all that is a guide to processing your helplessness in prayer out of Psalm 5. Because Psalm 5 not only gives us a, um, a really helpful understanding of what helplessness is, but it gives us five things that we can do and we actually have to do in prayer if we want to process our own helplessness well. All that being said, um, let's read God's word. Psalm chapter 5, it's just 12 verses. 
Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my sighing. Pay attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for I pray to you. At daybreak, Lord, you hear my voice. At daybreak, I plead my case to you and watch expectantly. For you're not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with you. The boastful cannot stand in your presence. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who tell lies. The Lord abhors a man of bloodshed and treachery. But I enter your house by the abundance of your faithful love. I bow down toward your holy temple in reverential awe of you. Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my adversaries. Make your way straight before me. For there's nothing reliable in what they say. Destruction is within them. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongues. Punish them, God. Let them fall by their own schemes. Drive them out because of their many crimes, for they rebel against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them shout for joy forever. May you shelter them, and may those who love your name boast about you. For you, Lord, bless the righteous one. You surround him with favor like a shield. This is God's word. Um, First thing I want to do before we get to what we're supposed to do in the face of helplessness is just look at the picture of helplessness that Psalm 5 gives us. Um, In the front end of this psalm, in the first two verses, what we see is, is David only has four things to offer God. He's got words, sighs, sounds, and cries. That's it. Whatever has happened in David's life, and we don't know what brought him to this place, which I really appreciate because that makes this psalm universal. Whatever has brought David to this place in life, he's at this place where this is all he can do is offer words, sighs, sounds, and cries to God, knowing that the situation he's in is officially beyond his control. That's the picture of helplessness. But with that, I want to make two observations that I think are really important for us to understand about the condition, the, the condition of our soul that we would define as helplessness. First off, I'd ask, I'd ask you to draw your attention to who's speaking in this psalm. It's King David. Now, at, at the time of the writing of this psalm, when David sat on the throne of Israel, Israel was the most powerful, it was the most um, respected, it was the most feared, it was the most influential nation, certainly in the ancient Near East, but arguably in the entire world. And so as king of this nation, David is at the top of the nation that's already at the top, meaning David could not have had more power or more influence or more resources at his disposal when he wrote this psalm. And so first and foremost, what this psalm is showing us is that even a person in a position like that is not immune to helplessness. Now, second to that, you might, you might be inclined to think, okay, well, David must have done something really foolish, as, as frankly, Scripture records him often doing, in order for him to find himself in a position like this. But you might be surprised to hear that actually this psalm teaches us that the opposite is true. If you, if you look at specifically what David, has in the sec, what David says in the second half of this psalm, what's clear is that David is in the situation that he's in, not because of his own sins, but actually because of the sins of others. So he's arrived at this place in his life through, through 
no overt moral failing of his own. And the reason, what that shows us is that even if you've, if, if you've done nothing wrong personally, you're not immune to finding yourself in a place like this. And the reason I thought that was worth highlighting is because even though I think most of us would say we don't believe this in our minds, I think the default mode of the human heart is for you and I to go through life believing that as long as we you know, cross our T's, dot our I's, you know, play by the rules to the best of our ability, then we're not going to find ourselves in any truly devastating places in life. But what this psalm is at its core is a very powerful and a very sobering reminder that no matter who you are and no matter what you have and no matter what kind of life you've lived, you are not far from a situation in which you are brought to the end of yourself, a situation in which you are truly, utterly helpless. And what that means for us today is that it is of the utmost importance that we know how to navigate when and not if we find ourselves in places like David found himself here. And so let me restate the question that I'm aiming at today. What are you supposed to do when you can't do anything? There's at least five things that we can pull from this psalm that David did in prayer that I want to tell you can only be done through prayer. We're going to spend our time today walking through all five of them. Number one, what do you do when you can't do anything? Number one, you remember the end. Verses four through six, David said, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with you. The boastful cannot stand in your presence. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who tell lies. The Lord abhors a man of bloodshed and treachery. Now, if you were here with us last week, you remember we laid a foundation for the discipline of prayer by looking at the Lord's Prayer. And we pulled five kinds of prayer out of that one Lord's Prayer that we're supposed to pray. And the first one that we talked about is what we termed remembering prayer which is the kind of prayer that's only goal is to focus on who God is and what he's like until the truth of who God is dawns on us in such a way that it actually captures us and begins to heal us and calm us. And I say that to say that is exactly what David is doing here. This is David's version of practicing remembering prayer. Now, the thing that I want to focus on in verses 4 through 6 is this little phrase at the second half of verse 4 where David says, evil cannot dwell with you. So the question I found myself asking when I was studying this is why did David think it's so important for him to rem- to remind his own heart of this aspect of what God is like and what is that meant to show us today? When David says evil cannot dwell with you, that word evil probably does not mean what you think it means. Um, I, I heard somebody say one time, you know, the New Testament's written predominantly in Greek, the Old Testament in Hebrew, and I heard somebody say one time that you can boil the Greek down to a science, but you boil the Hebrew down to a mystery, because Hebrew language is not like our language. It's, it's very um, image-laden, and it's very poetic in nature, which English is, is just not. And so what that means is that there are some words in, in uh, Hebrew that require dozens and dozens of different English definitions to try to give you a full-orbed understanding of, and this word evil is one of those words. It literally has dozens of different definitions. But to boil it down, what this word is, this word evil, is a Hebrew word that basically refers to anything that causes any kind of pain 
any kind of unhappiness or any kind of misery. It's a word that describes everything that the human heart intuitively knows is wrong with this world because of the curse of sin. And so with that in mind, understand that what David is doing here, the very first thing David does here is he reminds himself that there will come a day when all of the evil of this world and all of the evil that he was experiencing in his life personally, all of that evil, there would come a day that that evil would cease to have any power over David whatsoever because although he would live to see the presence of God, David knew evil would not. And so what David is doing here is what you could call creating a finish line. And to kind of give you an understanding or or, or illustrate what that means, let me just give you kind of a goofy example. Um, If you've been here for any length of time, you know I used to be a a firefighter. And in the fire department, I I worked with a guy, I don't know if you've ever worked with somebody like this, but I worked with a guy who who was not just, wasn't just a negative person, uh, he enjoyed making other people worry. I don't know if you've ever dealt with anybody like that. I think the psychology behind that was maybe it made him feel like he was in control, but the point is, it worked on me like a charm. <clears throat> and the way that it worked in the fire department is, is around the same time every year, the fire department in the county would enter into negotiations to figure out what next year's contract was going to be. And the fire department wanted what everybody else in the world wants, which is a better contract next year. You know, higher salaries and better benefits in the whole nine. And so every year around the time that we would enter into negotiations, this particular individual uh, would kind of sing the same song. And he would tell me how terrible things were going to be and how bad our lives were going to be on the end of this. And, you know, this is going to be the year. We're all out of money and all that kind of stuff. And it worked like a charm on me every single year. This particular year, the big scare tactic was our schedule. Because we worked, in Anne Arundel County, you work a 24-72 schedule, which means you work 24 hours straight, which can be a very long 24 hours, but then you get 72 hours off, which is amazing. And I remember him telling me, this was going to be the year they finally take that from us, and they're going to put us on 24-48s. And he was telling me, man, I've worked that schedule before, it's miserable, you never see your friends or family, you're tired all the time, and all this kind of stuff. And... Uh, What was different about our conversation this particular year is that he didn't know, because I didn't tell him, that I had already made the decision that I was going to leave the fire department to become a pastor here. And so nothing that he was telling me uh, could bother me. And it actually was clear that it bothered him that it wasn't bothering me. And so I actually decided to press him a little bit just to mess with him. I'm not saying I was right. I'm saying this is what I did. He said, man, we're going to get put on a 24-48. And he was like, man, I, this is what I said. I was like, man, I, I wish they'd give us 24-24. I love working with you, and I hate going home. This job's the best thing in my life. I hate, we get way too much vacation. I do this for free. And he lost his mind because he couldn't figure out why none of this was bothering me. And, of course, what he didn't know, the reason it didn't bother me was because I had a finish line in sight. And what that meant was that it didn't matter to me. It didn't control, it didn't have a hold on me anymore worrying about what might or might not happen between the time of that conversation, and the time that I said goodbye to the fire department. Now, I tell that story because it illustrates what I think is actually a pretty profound principle, and here it is. When you can see your finish line, it suddenly makes the rest of your race bearable. And, and for Christians, David knew this, and it is of the utmost importance that God's people know this. For Christians, there is no greater finish line than the presence of God. Because the presence of God, what that effectively means, the presence of God, this is exactly what David is telling himself here, is the presence of God 
equals the absolute, definitive, eternal end of everything that is wrong, not just with this life generally, but with your and my life personally. That's what the presence of God is. And so when you and I, through the discipline of prayer, are remembering the end, what you're doing is you're driving it into your own heart that everything that has caused you pain in this life, everything that has brought you anxiety in this life, everything that has wounded you in this life, and maybe even crippled you in this life, one day will cease to have any power over you, and and, and it'll never have power over you again. Because the gospel is, this is the gospel, that Jesus Christ entered into this world to take evil on himself, so that he could one day end evil without ending you and I. And by grace through faith in his name, though evil has an expiration date, you and I do not. Number one, what do you do when you can't do anything? You've got to remember the end. Now, admittedly, that's a very exclusively future-oriented idea, and, and maybe that leaves you wondering, well, what about the here and now? And that's actually where the psalm goes next. So number two, what do you do when you can't do anything else? Number two, you have to remember God's love. Verse 7, David wrote, But I enter your house by the abundance of your faithful love. I bow down towards your holy temple in reverential awe of you. Now, there's a couple of different ways to read what David is saying here. On the one hand, David is reminding himself and making it clear that the basis of his relationship with God was God's love for him and not anything that he could offer God to the tune of his achievements or merits or goodness or anything like that. But, but even more than that, what David is doing here is he's reminding himself that despite the situation that he found himself in, God's love for him was constant. He's reminding himself of God's love. Now, the reason that this is so important, and I don't, I don't think this is anything that you don't already know. The reason this is important is because situations like the one that David found himself in here in Psalm 5, situations uh, that bring us to the end of ourselves where we're helpless to do any and, and maybe even hopeless, um, those situations have a unique way of getting us to question things that we used to be certain of. And one of the first things that the human heart tends to question in the face of suffering or uncertainty, is does God really love me? If you look at, if you listen to enough stories of people, you know, you could call them deconversion stories. People who have, have, um, who have walked away from God, people who have walked away from the church. Um, there's a kind of a movement taking place now that I think you're going to hear more about uh, called, you know, the deconstructionist movement. Um, if you look at the individuals that are deciding to do that, um, almost every single time, what was underneath that is a, a situation in life, a painful situation in life that caused them to question something that they used to be certain of. Uh, and before anybody you know, tries to look down their nose at somebody like that, uh, it's important for us to understand that Scripture makes it very clear that no matter how rock solid your faith is, really nobody in Scripture is immune to that, including somebody like John the Baptist. John the Baptist was, was not only the forerunner of Jesus Christ, he was the cousin of Jesus Christ, which is a wild thing to think about. And uh, obviously a man of great faith and great ability, and, and you know, he, I mean, you could make the case that he was almost like the first kind of celebrity mega pastor. He had this huge following. People were flocking to him and repenting of sin and asking him, what do I do with my life and getting baptized? But when John the Baptist 
uh, found himself locked up, staring down the barrel of his own execution, even he sent messengers to Jesus to ask him, are you the one that we've been waiting for or should we start looking for somebody else? And no matter which way you want to slice that or interpret that, that is a crisis of faith. What happened in John the Baptist's life is that he was brought into a situation that caused him to question what he used to be certain of. And the reason I, I, I point this out is because if that is not beyond the cousin and forerunner of Jesus Christ, then, then you and I should not think it's beyond us. And so what David's example shows us here is that especially when your life is not working out the way that you want it to, in those times especially, it is imperative that you learn to ground yourself in the love that God has for you. That's exactly what David's doing here. And the truth is, we have far greater resources than David had for doing this. Because when when David's praying here in verse 7, he's saying, I I enter your house on the abundance of your faithful love. What David is doing is he's reminding himself of all that God's done so that he could relate to him. He's remembering, God, you allowed us to build this temple. You gave us the sacrificial system and you set up this priesthood so that we could enter into your presence and sin could be dealt with. But you and I living on the other side of Calvary can look at Jesus, the tangible evidence of God's love for us, and we can say, but we know the one who was the greater temple, Jesus Christ. And we know the one who was the final sacrifice for sin, Jesus Christ. And we know the one who is the ultimate high priest who stands to make intercession on your and my behalf in the throne room of God so that we will never be condemned. We know how far our God has, has gone to demonstrate his love for us. And so we ground ourselves in that, in that love when life is uncertain. It is more important than ever when life is uncertain. And the reason is because as a Christian, you will go through life either interpreting God's love for you through the lens of your experiences or interpreting your experiences through the lens of God's love for you. One of those leads to constant instability. The other one leads to an unshakable peace. So secondly, what do you do when you can't do anything else? Number two, you remember God's love. Number three, and these only get harder. I wish that was a joke, but they only get harder. Number three, what do you do when you can't do anything else? You surrender the self. Verse 8, David said, Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my adversaries. Make your way straight before me. Uh, I want to make sure that we don't downplay what David is actually asking God for here. Because it it might be easy to look at this and and see David is saying, all right, God, my life's tough, but help me to obey you. I'm going to obey you anyway. You know, I'll I'll keep the Ten Commandments, even though it would be easy to kind of take my own way out. If you just look at the imagery in David's words here, it, there's, there's something so much greater than that going on. When, when you pray, God, make your way straight before me and make this path that you've laid out for me straight before me and lead me down that path. When you pray that, what you're actually praying is, is God, the path that you've laid out for me may not be the path that I would have chosen for myself. And in your sovereignty, God, I recognize that you may never give me the life that I so desperately desire. But even if that's the case, and things never work out for me the way I was so certain they were supposed to, even if that's the case, would you give me the strength to walk out the path you've laid before me in a way that honors you? Do you have any idea how terrifying of a prayer that actually is? Because every single one of us Every single one of us has something that we have told ourselves we need in order to be happy. Every single one of us has something that we've told ourselves we have to have or we can't lose if our lives are going to have meaning. 
and our lives are going to be worth living. And the essence of this prayer in, in, in verse 8, the essence of this prayer is about a posture of heart that says, God, even if I never get that thing, even if you decide to allow me to lose that thing, God, I want so, I, God, I want so badly to be married. But if you don't have that for me, then help me to walk out singleness in a way that brings glory to you. God, I want so bad, God, I want so badly to have children. But if you have something different for me, then help me to walk that out in a way that brings glory to you. God, I want so bad for you to take these desires from me. I don't want to fight this fight anymore. I didn't ask to deal with this. I want so bad for you to just take these burdens, God. Take this pain. Take this anxiety. Take this depression off of me. Take these thorns out of my flesh, please, Father God, but even if you never do, even if you never decide to change any of that, Father, would you change me so that I can walk through this in a way that honors you? That's what this prayer is. Now, you may have noticed that that verse 8, where David is surrendering his will to God, comes directly after verse 7, where he's grounding himself in the love of God. That's not a coincidence. Because the only way you and I are ever going going to authentically and wholeheartedly surrender ourselves to God is if we first know how much that God loves us. I don't know anybody that's put this better than outside of Scripture than Charles Spurgeon. I found this quote a few years ago. He said, Some plants die if they have too much sunshine. It may be that you were planted where you get but little, but you're put there by the loving husbandman. Because only in that situation will you bring forth fruit unto perfection. Remember this. Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. You are placed by God in the most suitable circumstances. And if you had the choosing of your lot, you would soon cry, Lord, choose my inheritance for me. For by my self-will I am pierced through with many sorrows. Surrender the self. Number four, what this prayer shows us we have to do when we can't do anything else is number four, we leave punishment to God. Verse 10 says, punish them, God. Let them fall by their own schemes. Drive them out because of their many crimes, for they rebel against you. Uh, If you spend any amount of time in the Psalms, you'll find that that prayers like this and language like this is all over the Psalms. And actually, this is one of the tamest versions of this kind of prayer you're going to find. And and prayers in which someone is calling out for God, punish my enemies, and, and in some cases, destroy them. Modern people don't really know what to do with prayers like that. And the reason for that, I hope this doesn't sound offensive, but the reason for that is because most of us living in a modern world have lived very easy lives compared to a lot of people in different cultures in the world today and throughout history. But I'll tell you that there are people that, that can relate to what I'm about to say. If you, have, if you have legitimately suffered at the hands of someone else, I'm not talking about somebody called you out and it made you feel bad. I mean, if you have legitimately suffered at the hands of someone else, if you have been profoundly impacted by the abuse of someone else, if you have legitimately been the recipient of injustice, then you know how important it is to realize that God is not just a God of love, he's also a God of justice. Because if he's a God of justice, what that means is that he cares very deeply about those who experience injustice, and he has promised that one day no injustice will remain. 
everything will either be handled by Jesus or in hell. But the remarkable thing about David's words here is that as king of Israel, more so than anybody else in his society, David had more than enough power, he had more than enough authority to take matters into his own hands and give people what he was certain they deserved. And yet, even with all of that at his disposal, what David is doing here is leaving judgment up to God. And really, this is the only way, as painful as this is, and this, uh, this is not a decision you just make. I think this is, this is a path you walk down. I think it's a decision you've got to make moment by moment sometimes. But at the end of the day, the only way, this is the only way that we can avoid being overcome by bitterness, becoming cold and calloused and closed off, or becoming just like the people who have harmed us. The only way to avoid that is by, is by doing this. And if you've ever heard a psychologist say, you know, maybe you've heard this axiom that, that hurting people hurt people. Or broken people break people. Or, you know, you can kind of trace brokenness through family trees. And Basically, the reason for that, biblically speaking, is because nobody along that line, nobody took the time to do the profound soul work that's being modeled for us here in verse 10, where someone suffering injustice has done the difficult work of leaving that in the hands of God. Because when we leave punishment up to God, we do so realizing first and foremost that I don't have the wisdom to know what anybody else truly deserves. I don't know what God has done in somebody's life and plans to do in somebody's life, so I don't know where God plans to take them or even what they ultimately deserved. And even if I did, it's not my place to meet out when and how they get it. And so what, what David is modeling for us is this open-handed willingness to not take matters into my own hands and to trust God to be God. And the hope that we have is found in the final phrase here, David's words remind us that when people attack God's children, and let this mean something to you if, if you have been in a place that David is here, what David is saying is that when someone attacks God's children, God's people, their rebellion is actually against God himself. And therefore, we can have a measure of peace leaving judgment in God's hands, knowing that eventually no injustice will finally remain because God's a God of justice. So fourthly, what do you do when you can't do anything else? You leave punishment up to God. But fifthly, and lastly, what this psalm shows us, we have to do when we can't do anything else is we have to, number five, remember where refuge is found. The final verses of this psalm, verses 11 and 12, it says, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them shout for joy forever. May you shelter them. May those who love your name Boast about you. For you, Lord, bless the righteous one. You surround him with favor like a shield. This last idea wound up meaning the most to me um, because when I first read it, I read this as, as a command to take refuge in God, which is, uh, that's the truth. That's what all, all of us should do. But if it was something that I could just decide to do by flipping a switch, I would have done that a long time ago. I think in some way, shape, or form, every problem I've ever experienced boils down to the reality that I've looked for refuge in something other than God. But the more that I read these verses, I, I started to read them differently, and what I see them as now is it's David at the end of this psalm. It's amazing. There, there's nothing about this psalm that leads us to believe that, that David's external condition changed from verse 1 to verse 12. There's, there's nothing that, that should lead us to believe that suddenly David's life turned around. But what he's doing at the end of this psalm is he's reminding his heart 
his own heart. He's driving the truth into his own heart that the refuge he was ultimately looking for, the one kind of joy that he knew would would never be taken from him, and the blessing and the favor that that he most desired, that, that he could never find anywhere else and would always be unsatisfied until he found... That had nothing to do, David knew, that that had nothing to do with his present problems being solved. And what David is doing in verses 11 and 12 is he's showing us that what he knew he needed most was for God to go from being this idea that he thought about to a refuge that he took shelter in. The reason that this meant so much to me, the more that I sat on, on just these verses, is because like Psalms does this for me like no other book in the Bible. What this did is it forced me to confront myself. It forced me to see who I really am in all of the foolish ways that I tend to live. And what verses 11 and 12 show me about me, and maybe somebody else can relate to this, is all my life, I have, I have had this tendency to believe one specific lie. I think I've believed a number of different lies, but there's one specific lie that, that these verses show me and just force me to deal with. And the lie is that if I could just, if I could just solve this, if I could just solve X, if I could just deal with this problem in front of me, you know, the, the, the alligator closest to the boat, if I could just handle that and solve that and put that to bed, then right on the other side of that, then I'll have peace. Then I'll have freedom. You know, then it's going to be easy street. Then I can finally let my guard down. Then I can finally rest, which is an absolutely insane thing to hear myself say out loud. Because if I've learned nothing else in 34 years, what I've learned is that every time I've solved a problem, another one was waiting for me. And if you go through life believing that peace is on the other side of your problems, you're never going to find peace. And that is such an exhausting way to live, to believe that if I can just get past this challenge, this problem, this obstacle, this whatever it is, it leads to burnout, it leads to exhaustion, it leads to helplessness, it leads to hopelessness. And what God said, what what God spoke to me, not audibly, he didn't spell something in the clouds, but he spoke to me through his word. And what God spoke to me from these two verses and maybe what he would say to somebody else here today is that if you find yourself in a situation like David was in here where all you have is words, sighs, sounds, and cries, where you're in a situation that's brought you to the end of yourself and and you're powerless and you're helpless and you don't have any more cards to play, if you find yourself in a situation like that, what God is getting across in verses 11 and 12 is that what you need most in those moments is not for your present problems to be solved. What you need most in those moments is for your heart to learn the lesson that the refuge you've been looking for your whole life cannot be found in any situation in this life. It can only be found in the presence of God. In, in verse 12, you can't help but notice that David said, You, Lord, bless the righteous one, and you surround him with favor like a shield. Before I I leave this psalm and we conclude our time today, I just can't help but notice that should not be a comforting thought for David, that God blesses the righteous one. Because there's a whole lot of times in David's life when he hasn't been righteous. A whole lot of famous times when David has proved exactly how unrighteous he was. But what verse 12 does is it points us to Jesus, who was the ultimate righteous one 
who was the one that lived the life that actually earned God's blessing, that lived the life that actually earned God's favor, that deserved to be able to enter into God as a refuge, to find peace, to find rest, to find joy unending. But at the cross, what we see is that Jesus was denied all of those things. And so what the gospel is showing us is that the only righteous one who's ever lived was treated like an unrighteous one so that you and I, unrighteous ones, could be treated as a righteous one. That's the gospel. That's the final thought that this psalm leaves us with. Let me call the worship team up and we're going to close down the day. Let me ask my question one more time. How do you respond to a situation that leaves you feeling helpless? And what are you supposed to do when you can't do anything else? Number one, you have to remember the end. That every problem in your life will have an expiration date, but by grace through faith in the name of Jesus, you will not. Number two, you have to remember God's love. You have to choose to let that be the lens through which you interpret every experience you have in this life. Number three, you have, you have to surrender the self to stop obsessing over getting out of this place that God has you right now and instead commit yourself to walking out the path God's laid out for you in a way that honors him, even if that path leads you to a place that you would not have chosen for yourself. Number four, you need to leave punishment to God, refusing to take matters into your own hands and to try to play God in your or anyone else's life. But number five, fifthly and lastly, you have to remember where refuge is found, that the refuge Remember that the refuge your heart has been searching for your entire life, the comfort, the rest, the joy, the peace, the strength, the safety, the security, all of it will not be found in the absence of problems. It'll be found in the presence of God. That's what you do when you can't do anything else. That's how you process helplessness in prayer. That's it. And that's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, situations like David found himself in, in Psalm 5, situations like, like a lot of people might find themselves in today. At the end of this psalm, what you've shown us is that those places in life are a gift, as painful as they are, because it's those places in life that can show us where we've looked for refuge, the things that we've counted on to protect us and give us joy that can't protect us or give us joy. And in showing us that, God, those places are opportunities to do what David has done here, to process our own weakness, our own powerlessness, our own helplessness in prayer so that we might go deeper into a relationship with you and learn to hide more of our hearts, more of ourselves in the shadow of your wing. That's the only place we're ever going to find what we're looking for. We're foolish to keep looking outside. Our hearts are so prone to wander. Would you teach us to come home? Maybe there's somebody listening right now that just needs to come home. They've been looking for refuge. They've been looking for shelter. Would you bring him home, God? In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.